Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be welcoming Dr. Avantika Waring. She is the Chief Medical Officer for 9am Health. Avantika, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, as I do with all my guests, and I think specifically in this case, uh, especially important, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in your career, why you ended up here, your your clinical course, as well as, you know, stepping out and doing some, you know, slightly different things, if you would, please. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think I had probably a slightly circuitous path into the health tech world. Um, I'll kind of start when I was growing up. My father is a physician in a very traditional sort of way. He had a, a fever service, private practice in a New Jersey suburb, which is where I grew up. So I sort of always saw medicine as a really stable career, gave my father a lot of joy to, to practice, and he really enjoyed working with his patients. So when I went on to college, I actually majored in French and then quickly realized that I was like far too social to spend my life, you know, working on research projects in a library alone. So, so I thought, well, I know I like science and I like talking to people, so maybe I will do pre-med and ended up going to medical school um, with the thought that I would go into one of the more cognitive fields. So uh, I don't like emergencies. I'll just be upfront about that. So, so, so endocrinology really appealed to me because there are very few emergencies, any of you who are familiar with the field, and most of them can be solved on the phone, which is also really nice um, if you're thinking about having you know, work-life balance in your future. Um, went on to do my fellowship at, at UCSF, so kind of across the country from the East Coast to the West Coast, and I just spent a little bit of time doing research, and then really, I would say life circumstances kind of pushed me into practice, so I um, had one child and then two children and was sort of like needed, to, basically I needed to make money to, to support our family while my husband was finishing his training, so I took a job um, in a multi-specialty practice doing general endocrine. And I don't know that it was exactly what I wanted to do at the time, but I'm so glad that I did it because I really feel like no matter what path you take, having that hands-on clinical experience really sets you up for anything you're going to do later. Um, and for me, that was definitely the case. And, you know, I reference my sort of clinical past often in my work now. Um, so I was practicing for a couple of years and then started to feel these like the confines of doing the same thing every day. Um, looked around a bit in the Bay Area for something different to do. So we were in the San Francisco area, just didn't see the right fit. So at that point, my children, at that point I had three and they were all still quite young. So we thought, well, if we're gonna move, this is the time to do it. And that's what brought me to Seattle, which is where I am now. And the move to Seattle was kind of the first non-clinical job I had taken and the role was at the Kaiser Permanente region here and the job was to run the diabetes program and so it was kind of an interesting shift for me because I had never had a leadership role up to that point and the person who hired me you know I still stay very closely connected with him he really took a chance on me I would say because I'm sure he got a lot of other CVs for people who had done you know 
other types of management roles and I hadn't, but we just really had a great connection. And I really credit that for sort of where I am now because it allowed me to sort of think outside of like one doctor, one patient, one single interaction and start to think more on like a population health level. So I know this is getting kind of long, but I was there for a number of years before I sort of uh, realized that in the scope of that huge organization, I was definitely kind of facing some sort of stifling feeling, like I didn't know where I was going to go next. And that's when I started looking around kind of outside of the traditional healthcare environment and got connected to one of the founders at 9am Health. And what they were doing was very similar, actually, to and aligned with the principles that, that we had at, at Kaiser in Washington. And I got really excited about the idea of being able to do the same great work, but to do it faster, to do it with more scope, and to really be kind of like the leader driving, driving the programs. And so that's what brought me um, to the current position that I'm in. Well, I, I I appreciate that, and you know the the first thing I'd say is sacre bleu, as quand <laughs> en français. Hein? So, as, as my listeners will know, we could launch into a little bit of French, but that would just upset an awful lot of people and yeah. expose my poor poor memory of it from uh, my my background. Um, clearly, you know, extensive career, and obviously that sort of I, I'm going to call it shift into a specific area in in endocrinology with the diabetes or diabetes i say it differently every time it's you know the um, the mix of british and american in me um and then moving into a, a company that's sort of focused in that tell us a little bit about what's going on at 9am health because that really sort of underpins a lot of the uh, discussion yeah so we run a virtual cardiometabolic clinic that's truly end to end so it's very similar to functioning as a consultant, you know, and I, I like to translate this in case there are sort of clinician listeners. It, this is, I think, the best way to describe what we do. Um, we have a comprehensive program that includes physicians, specialists, dietitians, health coaches, pharmacists, nurses. And basically, it's imagine like the clinic of your dreams and then put it into a virtual space so that anyone can access it. Um, and we do uh, coaching and lifestyle change, but also medication management, all virtually, and using a lot of different modes of connection with the patient. So unlike, I think people think of virtual care as well, I schedule a video visit with my doctor instead of an in-person visit. We really try to stretch that uh, definition of telehealth to include kind of ongoing continuous care, remote monitoring, text-based messaging, um, you know, secure message interactions with the patient, and then also having, you know, video visits and phone calls when we need that personal touch. So, I, I mean, it, it's interesting. I was just listening to a, a discussion on cancer care and, you know, the prevailing insight that came across if, you know, you're unfortunate enough to endure cancer is you need multidisciplinary teams. You You don't need to go to the um, big ivory towers with specialists. You need to go to an institution that brings all of those teams together. And it sounds like that's what you've done. Is it confined to, I mean, I know virtual allows you to extend outside of the state. And, you know, we briefly realized during the pandemic that, you know, clinicians could practice across state lines. Yeah. 
I think a lot of that's being pulled back. Are you still where where are you on that in terms of being able to extend the service? Because obviously doing that allows more people to access it, right? Yeah. So we're available in, in 50 states and we do continue to practice broadly. Our physicians are licensed across all the states. And um, some of the other scopes of practices have different requirements about where they need to be licensed. Some can practice in states where there isn't, there's no licensing procedure, for example, for dietitians. So it can really vary, but we kind of are very closely watching all the legislation and, and sort of adjust our policies and, and our staffing and hiring to align. But the goal really is to be able to provide the same level of care no matter where the member is living. Um, and one of the things that, you know, just resonates with me when you talk about going to the ivory tower versus having the multidisciplinary team, I think you should be able to have both. And that's really what we aim to provide, right? We have top level specialists who have been trained at all the, you know, the best academic centers, and we utilize them as consultants to really drive those multidisciplinary teams. So let's say you live in a rural area where maybe there is a world-class specialist in the field of diabetes or, or obesity management, but they are four or five hours drive and they have a six month wait for an appointment, mm. you can get access to that specialist through our service, not that specific specialist, but to that, that type of care. Um, but also getting all these other kind of wraparound services that are often lacking. I mean, I can speak from personal experience it's really challenging as a physician nowadays to staff up a clinic with all of those resources in any kind of financially viable way. Um, so a lot of times what happens in the traditional system is you'll see your specialist, then you'll see your primary care, you'll get a referral, you'll go see a nutritionist, you'll get a referral to go see a you know, lifestyle coach, and it's just ends up being quite fragmented. And our goal really is to bring all of that care under one roof um, for the member just as conveniently as possible. So one of the other things that really strikes me about this is that, you know, as you bring all of those resources together in a virtual setting, that obviously opens up the opportunity, particularly in the rural setting where, you know, that remains woefully underserved for lots of very good reasons and some not so good reasons. Um, so you're able to expand, but one of the challenges with that is connectivity, access, even in the virtual setting. How are you addressing that? Because that continues to persist, at least in my experience. Yeah, no, you're you're completely correct. And there are millions of Americans who lack broadband access to this day, which is, you know, I live in Seattle and it's, we're like one of the most tech forward cities in the country, but Practicing here, I don't know if you've been to Seattle, but we have all this water around us, <laughs> around the city. And if you kind of cross the water and then go into some of the areas, they become quite rural very quickly. Mm. And that's something we struggled with here in my practice um, before coming to 9 a.m. as well, that there were just folks who didn't have access to the Internet. So um, it remains an issue and a barrier. And I would say that the way that we address that is by being super flexible about the way that we connect with folks. So of course we have an app, you know, we have a website. We also do a lot of audio only telephone care. So we have folks, especially seniors who have a landline. And if we're, you know, we're working with a Medicare Advantage plan, so we've been uh, connected with them through care management, we'll walk them through on the phone, the steps that they might otherwise do by themselves on an app. Um, and to make it just more analog for them. 
Um, the other thing I'll say is that most of our care can be uh, successfully navigated with a cellular connection. So you don't really need to have a video call bandwidth like we're doing right now, you know, um, just being able to text or make a phone call or send a message through your cellular connection um, will basically give us all the information that we need. So that's, um, I think that flexibility helps us to meet people who have uh, kind of less robust technology capabilities as well. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Avantika Waring. She is the Chief Medical Officer for 9AM Health. We were just talking about the distribution and the capacity to sort of include as many people as possible, um, you know, from a technology standpoint, trying to be as multimodal in terms of the channels that people access. The other thing that, you know, continues to sort of persist, particularly in you know, areas of sort of chronic illness and diabetes, obesity, um, you know, uh, particularly, I would say, is the racial inequities that continue to persist. How are you managing to address some of that? Um, that's a great question. And I'll just start by saying that, like, you always have to be humble about this. We do the best we can. And, and there are just so many underlying factors that make it really challenging to close those equity gaps. Um, one of the things I've been very intentional about since joining is really thinking about our care team. So we were very, I would say it starts with the staffings, our um, recruitment and hiring processes. We really look to try and hire folks who have a broad scope of experience, whether it's a specific racial background or a language um, uh, ability that's lacking from our team or just personal experience and immigrant background um, disabilities or different abledness, um, LGBTQ+. So I think creating a care team that has representation from a lot of different groups helps us to deliver care in a way that's more inclusive. And I would say that's not necessarily that we're insisting that you're matched up with someone who kind of aligns with your identity, but it, it kind of seeps into the whole culture of the group. Um, and so I would say that's one of the things that's really been important to me um, and our team since we've started and the next thing I'll kind of move to is that we really try and I keep saying flexible, but I think when you're talking about conditions that require uh, lifestyle changes and specific changes to the way that you're eating and interacting with the world, if you're not flexible in a culturally inclusive way, you're just not going to have success. So we do not with our nutrition program specifically kind of focus on one style of eating or, you know, one thing that you have to do or one thing that you cannot have. Instead, our, um, our aim is really to, to give people options that will work within the lifestyle mm. that they're already living, because that's why people stick around. They remain engaged and they, they feel understood. And then mm. they're more likely to take the next steps. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll mention is when we're talking about telehealth, some of the, the data shows that actually, you know, contrary to what you might think, even during the pandemic, the groups that use telehealth most frequently were not what you would imagine to be sort of your higher socioeconomic, mostly white patients. There's actually a lot of telehealth use amongst non-English speakers, uh, BIPOC patients, folks on public insurance like Medicaid and uh, people in lower income brackets. But the difference was that they were far more likely to use audio only or mm. messaging technology as opposed to video visits. And we could probably spend a whole you know, hour talking about some of the reasons that might be. But I think that by providing this multimodal access that's not um, 
we don't have any requirements about how you have to interact with your care team, allows a much broader group of individuals to want to engage and to, to be able to kind of stay connected with us as a health system. I mean, I think when you think about the way reimbursements work in the U.S., we still have a lot of trouble getting um, reimbursed for non-video visits, non-live video visit um, telehealth, and that you know, for whatever the reason is, it's just beyond the scope of this conversation, but it really creates a lot of um, inequities in the system when it comes to accessing telehealth. I mean, think about to do a video visit, you need to be able to take time off work or have time to yourself. You need a private, relatively quiet space to perform this visit, and you need to have a high-speed internet connection or a really good, good signal in order to do that. So if you're a person who lives in a multi-generational family, where are you going to find the time? You know, you've got your grandkids here and maybe you're sharing a room with a couple people. It's not really realistic to be able to set up and do that. So we really feel that by being flexible on how we interact with patients is far more inclusive than sort of the traditional vision of telehealth that people have. Yeah, you know, so many incremental points in there that, you know, finding a team that's as broad and diverse, you know, walking a day in the shoes. It's interesting you bring up that issue of, you know, finding an opportunity to sort of interact. And I heard this in one of my other shows, you know, talking about uh, brain health, mental health, you know, and individuals that essentially get into their car to find that opportunity and privacy because they had no I mean just yeah. you know and, and unless you have that experience or you've heard it at least you have no concept to sort of process it so it sounds like some great you know opportunities you know making inroads to be clear not always easy and you know full of lots of challenge and you know as you said being humble through that we've we've seen a lot of activity and you know let's not sort of conflate diabetes on its own has its own set of issues but we've now seen a whole new drug set of structures arrive that i you know if you believe the headlines are essentially going to solve the problem uh, you know there's a footnote to that only if you can afford it i think mm -hmm. um i'm curious to know what your thoughts are on how this might bring potentially some relief or is it i, I mean I, I have to see it as positive but it, it's not quite the panacea that some folks are making it out to be so so we're specifically we're talking about anti-obesity medications and the, right. the newer classes of the glp1 um medications so i think the way you've summarized it is a positive thing but not a panacea that probably should be put on a billboard, um, you know, <laughs> and on the side. I don't know if I get paid for it, to be clear, point, but go course, on. You can collect the royalties <laughs> for that. But I, I really think, um, when have we ever in life or in society found something that was so good that it solved a problem, you know, uniformly in that way? I can't really think in medicine, there, there's hardly any example I can think of. Maybe hep C treatment, you know, is probably, mm. probably an example of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, as an endocrinologist, we've been using these drugs for a very long time, actually, for the treatment of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and they can be incredibly valuable in that setting. Um, it sort of started off like, well, one of the side effects is that people do lose weight, and, and that can be really helpful as well. 
Um, I think in the new world that we're living in here, there these drugs, they have a role for sure. There are people who are suffering incredible complications and, and health outcomes because of weight that is very challenging mm -hmm. to lose. And I, I fully appreciate that we're shifting our kind of model of how we think about obesity um, to be less, it's not a choice. It's not a, you know, mm. a lifestyle feeling. It is a medical condition um, that some people are genetically far more prone to. Um, so if we have a treatment that can help someone uh, avoid or reduce a serious complication, then of course we're going to want to utilize that. But I think the issue that we come across is when we think about them as specifically weight loss drugs, then we're focusing on something very specific, which is weight. And weight is usually uh, defined as like your number on the scale or your BMI. And I, um, I really struggle with this because I really want people to feel that no matter what their body looks like, it's accepted, right? And we, mm. we, we're all allowed to be a different shape and, and size and color. And so, you know, I, I don't want the goal of these drugs to be that we're trying to eliminate you know, eliminate fatness from society. That's absolutely not, I don't think that would be a good thing. That would be the opposite of inclusive, right? Mm. So I think the, um, the, the way I think about these drugs is they're highly useful in certain situations for the right patients. And in other folks, I think it's really important that we explore all the possibilities of what else we can do to help them avoid developing those metabolic complications before they happen. And this comes down to, you know, okay, tell someone to eat healthy, but it also goes back to your, your kind of um, inequity issue. How do we get them food that they can afford that's healthy? You know, how does our, I mean, we can start with that, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> And so we, we saw with the thousand dollar drugs that uh, yeah you know. exactly yeah I mean organic healthy food is expensive but it's still cheaper than um, what go fee right <laughs> so, right <laughs> so but I think we do a lot of things with our team um, just trying to find uh, options to improve somebody's health through lifestyle means that fit within their their budget too uh, we have this joke at our office that all of the healthy eating handouts and templates show pictures of quinoa and salmon on them. Um, if you live in the middle of the country, if you're on a fixed budget, if you culturally do not eat salmon and quinoa, that's just not going to resonate with you right. and it's not going to help you, you know, make your diet healthier. So thinking about um, either more affordable options, we have resources to help people navigate how to eat healthy out of a convenience store grocery. Um, what, we work with a lot of folks who are have life on the road, so drive trucks or commercially drive for a living. And that was a big question that they had was like, well, how am I supposed to eat healthy when I'm eating at the, you know, the gas station for most of my meals? And so like we went out to one of those gas stations and looked around to see what could we put together that would be healthy for that individual. So I've kind of deviated from the topic of the GLP-1, but, you know, it's a really complicated uh, situation. And I think um, we don't know, honestly, what what will happen in 20 or 30 years if you remain on the drugs for that long, you know, likely you'll have a plateau. And then the question is how, how do we maintain that weight loss? You know, we just yeah. don't know. It's really early to say. So I, first of all, I'm just going to say a, a plea for me and, you know, pretty much a bunch of other people that uh, those guidance uh, 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 documents that you talk about, 
would be fantastic for road warriors. And I was a road warrior and, you know, still to this day, the idea that you can find healthy eating, I'm just fascinated to know what's yeah. in there. So that's that's really good news. I hope you'll share yeah. those. We will share um, it, yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in, as you think about the future, I mean, there's lots of things going on. What are you excited about? What's what, what, Where do you see all of this going? It seems like you've made some real substantial progress, but mm -hmm. what what's coming and what are you excited about? So um, I would say on the, the, the GLP-1 front, I'm excited about having more data and a better understanding over the coming years to really be able to develop good plans where we can identify who really needs these drugs, who's going to benefit from them, and where is it either not kind of um, worth the, the investment of time and energy on the patient side and where another method, you know, would be better. So that's something I'm looking forward to. I think a lot of these unknowns are actually great opportunities for, for future learning, which is exciting. Um, and I'm just excited about finding ways to spread high quality care to more people, you know, whether it's through insurance partnerships, through, um, you know, state governments, whatever it may be. My goal is that I want more people to be healthy and to be able to feel empowered to manage their, their conditions. Um, so anything we can do to expand that is that those are my kind of my North Star at this point. So we, we do have good health care. We do have good well care. It's just not evenly distributed. And I think, you know, the opportunity to make that um possible i think is uh, a tremendous uh way forward and um unfortunately as we do each and every week we've run out of time so it just remains for me to thank you for uh joining me on the show avantika thanks for joining me thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure thanks for joining me today do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, The Incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. Evolution.